Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. So he's evangelizing through life and through speech uh, in the temple courts and through his manner in which he lived in the community. And then he would gather those who believe, E number two, establish, establish a local church. And then after time with them, sometimes weeks, sometimes years, we see in some of the letters, depending on what was going on or where the spirit was leading him, he would then, the third E, entrust. He would entrust the care, the leadership of that local church to elders that he had developed and established. And that was the process. But in a few of his last writings that we have to this day, Paul couldn't be around forever. And so he had to start passing things off, even recognizing that he will die someday. And so some of his final letters, some of them being from prison, uh, to one of his apprentices, Titus, he wrote... In chapter 2, verse 1, teach what is consistent with sound doctrine. And to Timothy, he encouraged him, a dear apprentice that he referred to even as a son. He said in 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 13, hold to the standard of sound teaching or sound doctrine that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. You are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. When he arrived in Rome, he eagerly searched for me, found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy. Read between the lines there. There's people that have deserted sound doctrine. There's people that have wandered away. They've started listening, and he kind of gets into what happened. And then he says in chapter 2 to Timothy, you then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others well. This is where he talks a bit about eldership. But then towards the end of his final, what we believe to be his final letter to Timothy, Paul concludes, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent, whether whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, meaning whether the culture is accepting or hostile. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching, for the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. He's talking of believers here. He says, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. So, every generation, every church throughout human history and each culture is tasked with both guarding and developing our understanding of God and his gospel. Throughout church history, the church has affirmed that God has communicated through what we've called two books. The first one being creation, and the second one being the library of scripture. 
kind of theologians and church fathers and mothers of old have referred to it as two books. We mainly look to the Library of Scripture, but the Library of Scripture, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, it points out, it gives meaning to my understanding of the book of creation, if you will. So this morning, we're looking at Article 2. We're looking at the topic of Jesus, and we're asking two questions. Who is Jesus, and what did he accomplish? So let's take one at a time, and that's what this Colossians passage, I believe, highlights probably, in my opinion, most favorably, who Jesus is and what he did. So first question, who is Jesus? What is his identity? And perhaps for, for some of you, you're like, why are you saying is? Like, he's alive. He was, a, he was a person. Maybe you don't believe that he still is. So for your sake, maybe ask, who was Jesus? What did he accomplish? I believe he still is. But let's walk through that. Jesus is one of the most influential persons in human history. He's a Middle Eastern construction worker. And somehow, he was still one of the most influential people to walk the face of the earth. In recent, uh, in, in the 21st century, they've placed him anywhere from top 10 to top 20 most influential people in human history. However, it's, he's also a very unlikely influencer, being that he's from a very small Middle Eastern town. He's, a, he's likely lower or lower middle class from an obscure town in an empire that opposed his entire way of life. Not imposed, opposed. He's so influential that every major faith tradition has had to do something with him, right? So Islam refers to him as a prophet. They realize he's, he's, it's so obvious that he existed. We've we got to do something with it. So if you read the Quran, Jesus is mentioned a bit. It is another book, if you will. It was the old, and then the Christians added the new, and now the Muslims added the Quran. Buddhism acknowledges him as a great teacher of peace and human actuality, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, a Hindu, spoke very highly of Jesus. He referred to him as a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Very high praise coming from a person of Hindu thought. And though of Jewish descent, even Albert Einstein spoke highly of Jesus. He said, I am a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of, G of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrasemongers. How artful. No person can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of his type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. Even secular historians overwhelmingly acknowledge the reality of this person, Jesus, that existed at a time in the early first century in the ancient Near East. There's too much evidence for him, more evidence for him than any other person of that day. But while some have never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus, the recent 2,000 years of human history has forced humans to ask, who is Jesus, or simply ignore the evidence. There really is no in-between. This question is not simply for those outside the church, though. This is for us here, and that's why we're asking it. In Jesus' life, if you look at Matthew 16 on the screen, and starting in verse 13, 
Matthew summarizes, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's, that's him if you're not familiar with that terminology, Son of Man. Some of your translations say the human one. And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others, Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. Now, yes, there was a timely reason in redemptive history why people, you know, we, we may read the Gospels on this side of the resurrection a little frustrated sometimes when we're like, how do they not get it? Like, it's obvious it's him. And even retroactively, some of the Gospel writers will, will note, like, looking back, we realized, oh, this is when he f- was fulfilling this. But there was this general versus special revelation. It's a theological term, but essentially at that time, They lived in more of a veiled time, if you will. God's spirit hadn't descended yet. He hadn't opened the eyes of people's hearts to see because Jesus said, my time had not yet come yet, right? He had to go to the cross. He had to conquer sin and death. He had to resurrect before the spirit could descend and the the new age, the new creation could be inaugurated. For the first century of the church, however, we talked about this when we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity a few weeks ago. There was still a lot of misunderstandings and mischaracterizations and theories as to who Jesus was. Some viewed him as a normal human being that eventually had God descend upon him just one day. A a lot of theories placed it at the baptism of John, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, that up until that point, Right around my age, 31-ish, where he's about to start his ministry, rolls into the river, gets baptized, and then the Spirit descends, and now he's also God. That was deemed a heresy. That was more of a Jewish view, of a Jewish believer view. These are Christians still sorting this out in the early centuries. And then more of a Gentile view was more that he was actually God incarnate, uh, but not really incarnate. It was more of a mirage or a phantasm, that he wasn't actually a physical being in that way. It was more just this mirage right in front of you. But it wasn't until the second century, and this is the term that I found most favorable that I'd like us to focus on. It wasn't until the first century that apologists developed what is referred to as logos Christology, meaning uh, an understanding of Jesus. Now, according to Stanley Grenz, he's one of my more favorable systematic theologians, he writes... He refers to Logos Christology as the rational principle of the universe. The rational principle of the universe. Here's why this matters. Do we know the word Logos? Are we familiar with where this is in the scriptures? In John 1, this word is utilized a lot. It's the word for word in your your New Testament. It's the Greek word for word. And so in the first century, in the ancient Near East... And leading up to that, in that time, very common for the brightest thinkers of the day to be trying to figure out and discern what the logos, what the rational principle of the universe was. Essentially, what's the meaning of life? And yeah, we're still kind of sometimes wondering that age to age, and, or sometimes we're like, no, there is no meaning, depending on culture. But at that day, it was pretty prevalent. There's got to be some meaning to this universe. There's got to be some purpose And so in John's biography of Jesus' life, he begins by echoing the Genesis 1 poem of creation with a new poem of new creation into this culture that was searching for purpose. 
you look at John 1, starting in verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the rational principle of the universe. And that Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. Then he wraps up that introduction by saying, And the Logos became flesh and lived amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So this understanding of Jesus as not simply just a rabbi or a healer or even a savior, but as the very character, the very essence, the very person of God that had already been manifested in creation, right? You could see God's beauty in creation. It is now, according to John, manifested in the human Jesus. This was key. And now, this is where church history can get a little unsettling. I don't know about you, but we'd think by at this point, hey, maybe they got it. Maybe we're like, okay, we got Jesus a couple centuries in. We've all kind of agreed on who he is. It's not that simple, and I'm not going to go through it. Um, but there are still many in that day, for centuries, and even to this day, numerous debates, key evangelical Christian theologians still sorting out some of the intricacies of who Jesus is. And it can be scary for some people. Does this dishearten you? That some of the brightest minds in church history haven't totally agreed on the identity and mission of Jesus. We mentioned a few weeks ago with the doctrine of the Trinity that it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century that they finally affirmed that Jesus was God because there was this division going on. And then it wasn't until later that it was that the Spirit was affirmed as God. And then how that even works. How was he both fully God and fully man in one being? It's complex. It could be reason why there's a decent population of aspiring pastors who go away to seminary and they lose their faith. Or they become agnostic. Or they become theists, but they're just like, whoa, there's actually a lot more when you dive into the plethora of theological discourse. Initially for me, I'll own... uh, it can be disheartening. It very much can be. Perhaps even a little concerning. And it's almost, my instinct is almost like, okay, don't read that because that's scary and that's making me question everything I ever heard. Um, But we can't ignore this stuff. We can't ignore the, the plight of church history, the plight of even the early church who walked with Jesus. I try to be encouraged by the discourse, and here's why. I said this a few weeks ago, but again, with regards to Jesus, the reality is that none of us can know him completely, like completely understand, grasp, have him right here and being able to articulate anything and everything about him and say, I know him to a T. I know him better than I know myself, which arguably we don't really know ourselves that well, right? No. But that can be uncomfortable for some, but for me... I find that to be encouraging because if I were to be able to define God and and put him in a box, would I want to worship that God if I couldn't understand everything about him? There's some things about him that are just other, right? He's creator. We are creation. 
He is God. We are humanity. He's infinite. We're finite. In a sense, we should not completely be able to grasp who God is. And so this makes sense that the church still sometimes has, like, like Thomas said, has faith, but still has some doubts. And that is often our journey. I don't know if you've ever been on a road trip where, you know, every time we go on a road trip, we get our car checked up. And especially when we moved from here, you know, we did Washington down to Southern California. We went New Mexico, all the way up to Colorado, back down to Texas, and then up. Like, it's a long trip, and it was a newer car, but it was kind of like, you're like halfway down the five, hitting like the, the south of Oregon, nor, north NorCal, not San Francisco NorCal, like real NorCal where there's no service. And like, if you, if you break down, there's like no one around. And it kind of hits you like, oh wait, is my car gonna make it? Like I know I'm going, I know it's good, but then like, wait, am I on it? It's kind of that life journey where I have faith, but it's okay to have doubts, to okay to be like, wait, what is Jesus like? Is this him? How does that work? How is he 100% something and 100% something else? That equals 200%, but yeah, it's okay. I want to affirm that with you. I hope you can be encouraged knowing that that God is the God who makes his reality known to us. This is why we refer to our lives in Christ, this side of death, as a walk with Jesus, not a standstill. A journey, not an arrival. This is why we refer to following the way of Jesus as practicing the way of Jesus. There, practice implies we're going to mess up, right? If you've ever been an athlete or an artist of some sort and you're practicing, why are you practicing? For the big game, for the journey. But we are progressively, hopefully, getting better unless you're often our Cleveland sports teams, right? Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to own it. The Cavs are doing great this year, and then what happened? Um, but yes, that is the life of a Jesus follower. We are becoming more and more like Jesus by God's grace and the power of his spirit. We are becoming one with his heart. God's heart is becoming our heart. God's eyes are becoming the way we see the world. However, we still fall short, and that includes even in our theology, our doctrine. While I think I believe everything I think, I also have to own that I definitely don't know everything. I know very little. And it is very likely that I can easily be corrected or persuaded by someone far more intelligent and studied than I am. That's why... These holes that we have, we, do this, we try to do theology in three manners. We do it in church community. That's why on Thursday nights with groups, we're doing it around the table, right? Side note, if, if you haven't been here, that's why we're leaving tables up right now. Groups are here on Thursday nights. We do it around a table. Because me preaching at you in rows, if that's your only way of learning and, and studying and, 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 and diving into the reality of God and his gospel... That's just me telling you what. No, we do it together in church community. But we also do it in light of the academy, in particular the theological academy, those trained in greater understanding of how to approach the scriptures. And then we do it in light of church history. That's why in our bulletin we, we share some church history stuff, things that happen each, each day in church history, what advances and, and, and pitfalls sometimes of church history and how we've developed our understanding or rethought things. 
or clarified, but our questions of God are not bad. God can handle them. Our questions are us being honest with God, and by asking them, he can help us understand him more. But if we don't ask, you know, we teach our kids this, right, parents? If you don't ask, you're not going to get what you ask for, right? If you don't know there's a blank, you're not going to be able to find, get that blank filled in. And so understanding that, owning that, being like God, talking to his spirit, even talking around the table with brothers and sisters in faith, diving into your word and things of that sort. Owning that, God, help me understand this is good. He can help us understand him more. And John says that we've seen his glory in Jesus. We've caught a glimpse of the rational principle of the universe. God incarnate. So let's keep going through the passage. Who else is he? He's God incarnate. He is the rational principle of the universe. He is the meaning of life. He's the source of all life. And so starting, just going to walk through the verses in our passage. Starting in verse 15. Beginning in this letter from Paul to the church in Colossae. He writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Those of you in groups, image, where are we getting this from? Genesis 1, right? He's bringing back that creation language. Humanity was made in God's image, right? To reflect, to reflect up to God in worship, but also to reflect out to all of creation, God's character, God's goodness. To reflect and create and develop and cultivate, to steward to make him known in the universe. So this means that Jesus is the starting point of new creation. Just as humanity was the original image bearer, right? The the original spearhead, the firstborn, right? To image God before in the old covenant. Now in the new covenant, Jesus is that firstborn. And he writes of this, he says, humanity was designed to be the perfect vehicle for God's self-expression within his world so that he himself could live appropriately among his people as one of themselves and could rule in love over creation as himself a creature. We were vehicles. We were vessels. We were instruments in the Redeemer's hand, as some people refer to it. We were to be a part of that. But the fall messed that up. Humanity's sin broke that image, right? And just as humanity, like we said, was God's image in Genesis, so Jesus is the new image, restored for new creation. In the new Genesis, John. John 1 is literally trying to mirror Genesis 1. Paul continues then in verse 16. He says, For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created things, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. So he's saying the totality of all universal powers, seen and unseen. This means all the spiritual realm that is, got to hand it to you. If you don't know, it's ever-present, like it's in this realm here. We talked about heaven and earth a few weeks ago on Thursday nights and just the overlapping of the realms and the ages, the physical and the spiritual And that all of Scripture is pointing to the reunification of those realms where God's space and our space can now 
completely overlap one day, and right now it's overlapping in pockets through us as image bearers, renewed creation in this world, taking God's space out into the world. But all of this were made by and in and for God. This means that he's the creator of all things, the means of creation and the purpose of creation. Now the man Jesus, note, wasn't in the Old Testament per se. It's a very tricky, more of a weightier thing, and, and you know we don't have to get totally into that. But God himself, God as triune, was. But the, the human Jesus who was born was not back then. The Son of God, the Word of God, was. And that's where Paul gets into as he goes further here. We'll see this. In verse 17, he says, Jesus himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Nothing is independent of Jesus. I was watching a documentary this week about the realities of, like, if the moon or the sun were moved just like barely anything, how the universe could just totally cave in. Or, like, all these crazy things that everything is placed in the precise place in the grand scene of the universe. To me, I see that and I see God. I see, wow, God placed it perfectly. This is where I justify my perfectionism and Enneagram oneness of like, no, that's why everything needs to be perfect, right? Some people, I scare you, Susanna. <laughs> oh, I wish Kathy Neal were here. We had a conversation about this this week. No, I know, I, I can't justify that part. But anyways, God, in his precision, has it made out, in a way, the universe that man, if he were not holding it together, if it was every intricate detail was not so, it would not be so. We would not have happened. That's why Psalm 119.91 says, by your appointment, they stand today for all things, all things, not all people, all things are your servants. All of creation is God's servant. So Roman, uh, Romans 11.36, Paul writes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. When I was younger, I, I had an understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel being solely about me and my salvation and people's salvation and, and this world's going to hell in a handbasket and... It's about God saving us so we can go away and be with him. But no, the scriptures very much so have a lot of language like this where, yes, we are the, we are the primary. We are made above even the angels. We are placed higher. However, God wants to dwell with all his creation and wants to restore all of it. This is a part of the kingdom coming. This is why God's beauty we see so evidently in creation, right? Throughout the beauties of the natural world. Some of you enjoy gardening. Even this week, I took Rowan around the house, and some flowers started budding. And she turns the corner and sees them, and it's just like, oh! And she does that with everything. But it's just, it's just funny, because... And, it, and it's great to be reminded of the complex and rich beauty 
in such something that is so overlooked, something that seems so tiny, and yet I got no idea how to make that. I have no idea how to craft that. I wouldn't have dreamt that up. But in something so tiny. But then you can go to the falls, right? You can go to Niagara Falls. You could go to the Alps. You can see God's majesty in all this. God didn't make this all for nothing. Initially, God wanted to dwell with humanity in this temple space, heaven on earth. And now, through Jesus, he is starting to bring that back. He holds it all together. And for me, when my life feels like it's falling apart or um, I just can't keep a grasp on it, that, man, if I drop the ball on one more thing, everything is going to go. Everything is going to fall. Right? Have we felt this? We've gone through seasons like this. For some of us, we might be like, that's my life. For me, this helps me know that we can trust God because he holds all things together. If he holds the entire universe together with such precision that it doesn't cave in, that asteroids don't come in a certain manner, that, that well, anyways, if you want to watch that documentary, I can, I can send you the link. Um, but still, how precise and how intricately God works if he can do that, man, he holds my life together. I can trust him. Praise God that he's in control, right? And not, not us, right? Not that, I don't know about you, but I would not be, I know I'm a control freak, but I would be a freak if I was in control. Um, back in Colossians, though, Paul transitions from Jesus before and sustainer of all creation in verse 17 and 18 to the new creation. He says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to a first place in everything. The firstborn. It's kind of this weird language. You're like, what do you mean he's a firstborn? This is resurrection. This is new creation language. His resurrection literally inaugurated new creation. This began God's space returning here with humanity's space. It's literally the first fruit of the harvest. That's why I like... Uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message often uh, paraphrases these in, in interesting manners, and I love the way he referred to it here, as Jesus here is leading the resurrection parade. Leading the resurrection parade. That we, in church history and going forward, we are right in line behind that, where our lives are being reborn. And we are taking this to the streets, Right? He's leading the resurrection parade, and we have joined in in the celebration. The resurrection of the Son of God was just the beginning. Behold, resurrection life has come and is coming in our midst. Here, as in heaven, God's space. In verse 19, Paul says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He wasn't simply a human, but God too. And we touched on this a little bit. How does that work? How is Jesus both God and human? I'll just say it's a divine mystery. I'm going to own that I can't define and articulate God perfectly. And I think that, again, is okay. But similar to the doctrine of Trinity, that God is one and yet three persons, and somehow they're one, they're, they're distinct beings, but they're not each other, all that, it's immense. 
It's incomprehensible, but it is good. The cool thing is, for me, our inability to totally grasp the fullness of God, it's okay. It shows us that God is other, that he's magnificent, but that though God is beyond us, God still wanted to dwell with and amongst us. That gets me. And I hope you don't miss that. That even though God is so far beyond us, he wants to be among us. And in Jesus, Paul's saying here that God has made a way for this to be so. And that's where the second question comes in. What did he accomplish? And, and we'll just summarize here, finish out the passage. This leads us to attempt that question. What did he accomplish? We're asking, what was his mission? Paul says in verse 20, through him, through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Notice that interesting, reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. I was like, what does that mean? What's in heaven that needs to be reconciled to himself? Interesting. I'm just going to drop that there. I actually don't know. Um, but it's interesting. Maybe fun little deep dive for you after church. By making peace through the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the means through which God could reconcile all things to himself. But what does all things mean? We touched on this on one level. Through Jesus' blood, through his cross and resurrection, humanity has now been reconciled to God. And then on another level, through Jesus' act of shed blood, all of creation has begun being reconciled to God. Notice the language too, Paul says has been. Is he was pleased to reconcile. But then there's the by making peace. Interesting, it's a past tense. Was pleased, meaning it happened we have been reconciled. I love this again from the message, the vivid imagery here. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this as, all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. In vibrant harmonies. I love that. The sins of humanity led to the fall of creation, but the reconciliation of humanity leads to the restoration of creation. I'll say that again. The sins of humanity led to the fall of all creation. The scriptures talk about how all creation is mourning because of what we did. Because we didn't do our jobs. Because we chose to build an image of ourselves rather than image God. And because of that, all creation groans. Similarly now, though, because of Christ, the firstborn among creation, and us who are in his new creation, our reconciliation now leads to the restoration, this unfolding, redemptive history that we're a part of and are called to continue to bring forth. And the last part here in Colossians Verse 21, Paul says, You who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided 
that you can continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which, I, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Again, every creature, not just human. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. So not only did Jesus' death and resurrection reconcile us to God, it also made us holy before God. This holiness is, the word there is irreproachable. This means that our lives are above reproach. It's above the criticism of our sin nature of ourself, of the enemy, of our enemies. Our sin has nothing on us anymore in a court of law, if you will. We have been made holy, but we are still being made holy. He sees us as Jesus, but he's still making us like Jesus. God sees all of creation as his restored temple, but he is still restoring it as his dwelling place. This means that our lives in Christ are above that, but our identity cannot be questioned or stripped from us. So before Jesus, we are blameless. As Paul continued, provided that we continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that we heard. Well, in summary, as we wrap things up here, who is Jesus? From Article 2, I'm just going to summarize all the ways that he has been named. He's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, He's the Word of God. And by Word of God, we don't mean literally these pages. No, He is the Word of God. It's two different words. He's the, head of ch- he's the head of the church. He's the Messiah through whom God has prepared the new covenant for all peoples. He's the prophet proclaiming God's kingdom. He's the teacher making known God's will, the faithful high priest making atonement, and now this very second interceding for us who are in Him. He's the king with a servant's character, both fully human and fully divine. He's the image of the invisible God, our Lord and not yet recognized Lord of the world. He's the Lord and Lamb that is returning and will reign forever and ever. And then what did he accomplish? What was his mission? He delivered us from the dominion of sin. He reconciled us to God. He died on a cross. He resurrected from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and the enemy. He proclaimed forgiveness of sins and peace. He began a new community of faith by calling disciples. He loved his enemies and did not resist them with violence. He offered up his life to the Father. He bore the sins of all. He conquered death and disarmed powers of sin and evil. Why does this matter? Why is it important that we endeavor to have a clearer understanding of who Jesus is? Well, there are many reasons, two in particular stand out to me. Who Jesus was and is affects who we are and who we are becoming. So who Jesus was while he walked this earth and who he is even to this very moment affects who we are and who we will become, meaning who we are. We are if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. 
The old has passed away. But who we will become, God is making peace. God is making us more like Jesus. His spirit is leading and transforming us. And the second reason why this matters, what Jesus did and is doing affects what we do today and will continue to do until kingdom come. What he did on this earth and what he is doing through the power of his spirit affects, yeah, see they're cheering for this, uh, affects what we do today. This isn't like a deposit, you know, we've heard the gospel preached to, I, I think the evangelism question of if you die today, where are you going is, is not a good evangelism opening question because it's kind of this like, hey, get your get out of jail free card now. Let's just think about then. No, let's talk about now. Life in Christ now. That's our message here, man. That's the reality of the spirit. That's the reality of the new creation, the new birth. That, man, we can start experiencing God here and now. God is not just something that we've got to deposit on a place in the future. Man, we're, we're getting to move in now. It's moving in now. And we're starting to move in now. And we can be a part of that, right? We've seen that. Last week we talked about stories of that new life moving in here and now and ways that we've been a part of helping move that new life in here and now. What Jesus did and is doing affects what we do today and will continue to do until kingdom come. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.